Well, uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm uh, Pete Williamson. I'm a deacon here at Church of the Cross. My primary ministry is with grad students at, at Harvard and Tufts with InterVarsity. But I'm blessed to be here this morning to talk about how we are called to enter into God's story and invite others to do so rather than to fit God into our story and to interpret him within our own previous narratives. Have you ever been in a situation where someone's taken, you know, a piece of information which maybe you share, but they've kind of forced it into their prior knowledge and what they expect, and it comes out very differently? A relatively trivial example is when I uh, came to these United States from New Zealand, that place where about half the people of Worn Collars up here have come from, and, uh, and I was talking to a guy at the train platform, and when he found out that I was from New Zealand, he came up to me and he said, do you know what they call you in Australia? They call you Kiwis. In, in his frame of reference, kiwi was only a word with reference to fruit, and so he assumed that we'd be named after fruits, and that was clearly a derogatory thing. But I'm pleased to inform you, in fact, we were named after our national bird, the kiwi, which is a, a stubby little pudgy thing that can't fly, let alone consistently survive in the modern world. But nevertheless, we, we are proud of this bird, and in fact, the fruit is named after us as a clever marketing ploy, which you all fell for. Um, other, otherwise, you'd be calling it the Chinese gooseberry. It's, it's not even from New Zealand, but there you go. The more you know. As we read through Acts, we find Paul and Barnabas entering a town and them giving them something and it being received entirely within the previous narratives the local people already knew. A people who took the occasion of the healing of a man by God's living power and saw it in a way that they didn't expect. And so Paul and Barnabas had to point them back to God's story of redemption. What had been happening before this story is that Paul and Barnabas had been going through the Roman province of Asia, part of modern-day Turkey, but basically considered part of Greece at the time, to preach the gospel. And each time they go to a new town, they go first to the synagogue and in this very Jewish story, proclaim the gospel to the Jewish population, often with mixed success and inevitably some opposition rises up against them, which forces them to go out to the wider population and proclaim the gospel to to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. But the opposition comes out and continues to pursue them and eventually reaches a point that they have to leave that town and go on to the next town. But when they get to Lystra, it's kind of different. There's no mention of a synagogue, and perhaps there is no synagogue in Lystra. This might be the first time they've come to proclaim the gospel in a place where there is no background in, in, in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish God. And what happens there is a bit different. If you, as we get to the start of the, the story in Acts today, um, if you've got a Bible on your phone or in front of you and you want to follow along, we're looking at Acts 14, starting at verse 8. Because at the beginning of the story, Paul is preaching, the crowds are listening, we don't find out anything about the content of his preaching. It's probably something about Jesus. And Paul notices a man who can't use his feet. And amid a sea of skeptical faces, Paul sees a face full of hope and faith. 
the faith of a man who had no position in this society, perhaps the lowliest person there, a downtrodden man who's saying to himself, if this God can raise a man from the dead, surely he can meet me in my affliction. And Paul is on a mission to testify to the good news of the living God. And he knows that this is a matter of more than just words, but this is a matter of God's power and action. He reflects on this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he reflects and says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. These confused Greeks needed to see God's power. So he says boldly, stand up upright on your feet. And the man does. He's healed. In fact, more than healed. In fact, that line that says he had faith to be made well, that word for made well is really the same word for salvation. He had faith to be saved. It's worth reflecting on what's going on whenever a healing happens, like they're all through the stories of Jesus and through the apostles. But Jesus could have come and saved the world by his death and resurrection without healing a bunch of people along the way. So what's really going on here? Well, God's plan for salvation is much broader, much more all-encompassing and and holistic than, than just absolving of our transgressions, as significant as that is. God presents his salvation mission succinctly in in Revelation 21, where he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And here at Church of the Cross, we teach people a, a, a summary statement of the gospel, which is this. Jesus is Lord, and through him, God is reconciling all things and making all things new. So when a healing happens like this man... It's not just a kind thing for a suffering person. It's enacting God's plan of salvation to make all things new. An early inbreaking of an ultimate kingdom where there is neither pain nor disease nor injury nor sin nor brokenness. This is not mere physical recovery. This is salvation, a tangible expression of the good news of Jesus Christ, reconciling all things, making all things new, an outworking of God's grace and mercy. But that's not the story the people receive when they see this man. They're very quick to recognize divine power, but they hear it within their own story. And so like Ewoks looking to see 3PO, they think their gods have come to us. Their gods are present. And Barnabas, they call Zeus the powerful one because he's the strong, silent type who sulks in the background stinking of intrigue so they think he's powerful and Paul who's kind of quick with his mouth they call him Hermes who's Zeus's like yappy messenger I personally think they're too quick to judge Paul here just because he's an external processor doesn't mean you should disregard him but anyway they're, they're all talking in their own language so Paul and Barnabas don't really know what's going on until suddenly a priest turns up ready to make sacrifices to them There's some important backstory here. So Ovid, who's a Latin poet writing about 60 years beforehand, he writes a story of Zeus and Hermes coming to this area, this particular area, looking for hospitality in in human form. And they are shut out. No one gives them hospitality except for one elderly couple. And that elderly couple 
is blessed for what they did, but the entire surrounding region is destroyed in this act of judgment. So when these locals see divine power, they don't see a generous God making all things new out of his love and kindness. They see capricious gods serving their own needs who have not forgotten past mistakes. Gods who need to be placated so they don't lash out again. And so they turn the good news of salvation into a reaction of fear. They exchange God's generosity for a troubling warning from lesser gods. They turn the gift of life into a threat of death. And they exchange the living God for dead gods. And so they turn up to placate these gods with sacrifices. And Paul and Barnabas rip their clothes in devastation, which always struck me as a hard thing to do in the moment, just to kind of grab your clothes and rip them apart. I mean, Mark has enough difficulty ripping bread, let alone whipping clothes, and <laughs> couldn't help it. And uh, so anyway, they, they, they rip their clothes on, on the mom, in that moment and try to convince these people not to trade in truth for a lie. And they say, we're people like you, in, in the Pete paraphrase. This is good news. This isn't about capricious, vain, dead gods. This is about the living God who made everything and who's responsible for it. The living God is, is gracious, and even though the heavens have been declaring his glory throughout all time and you could see it, he will not hold you to your past mistakes when you followed after those, those dead gods who you lived in fear of. But now he's invited you not to turn his act of salvation into an act of condemnation, but instead to exchange those dead gods who can only give you death for a living God who can give you life. And the crowds relent, but only just. This story highlights the very real danger of trying to fit God into our own narratives rather than to fit ourselves into God's great story. On this passage, uh, N.T. Wright says that it's remarkable what can happen to a message when the hearers insist on inserting it firmly into their own worldview. We not, might not be quick today to label people as gods and bring sacrifices to them, but we're pretty capable of forcing whatever information we, re we receive into the, the pre-decided interpretive lenses, which are our favorite ways to see things. It got me thinking what would happen if Paul and Barnabas turned up in the Boston Commons and, and called a crippled man to his feet. How would the crowd receive it? They'd probably be much more skeptical, skeptical of the healing. Is it a trick? Did, did anyone get a good look at the guy before he was supposedly healed? What's Paul and Barnabas' motivation anyway? Do they come from a parent organization? Who's funding them? Has their parent organization given to any political campaigns? Which ones, the good ones or the bad ones? And if, if they become convinced that this man was previously crippled and now is, is not, perhaps they'd ask their friends at MGH if there's any, any precedent for such a psychologically sort of prompted recovery. Didn't Freud use some psychological techniques that sometimes worked maybe? And can we replicate those techniques? Maybe there's actually a startup in this. Can, we, can any neurological theories describe what's going on? It's easy to dismiss the crowds of Lystra as naive people for their reaction, primitive people. But we're all at risk of preferring to reinforce 
our own narratives rather than to truly see God when he threatens our perspective. We risk worshiping something that is not God, which is called idolatry, putting God into a secondary position, making him some subservient to something else that is our true ultimate concern. But God's not interested in the Oscar for best supporting actor. He needs to be in first place. Idolatry is meditated a lot on in Scripture, worshiping things that cannot give life rather than the one who makes all life, worshiping dead things, vain things, instead of the living God. That's the word Paul uses for God in this passage, the living God, and it's possibly my favorite name of God, if you like. The living God. It's the name that we use for God or used in Scripture for God when it's used in reference or in comparison to dead gods of wood and stone which cannot save dead gods who cannot act. This is not that. This is the living God. And what's the result of toppling God from his rightful position? Well, then we do not have access to the source of life, and instead we find all sorts of things that are not life. We find anxiety and arrogance, jealousy and ingratitude and fear, condemnation and dehumanization of of others and of ourselves, lethargy and pettiness, and like the people of Lystra, we make great sacrifices at true cost to ourselves and our humanhood in order to honor these things which cannot save us. We make a very bad trade. We exchange the God who gives grace with some other thing that can't give us anything. And I think in light of this, we need to be a discerning people people who can identify the narratives that dominate our culture, the things that are in the water that we don't even notice, that we imbibe and that they define our reality. We have to do this deliberately because these are often so ingrained in our, our psyche that they go by undetected. And we need to be able to do this for our own benefit, but also in our proclamation to, our, to the world and in our outreach that we're aware of the stories that define our reality so that we can point from those to the living God and the good things that he has. So what are some of these narratives? Well, I think one of the narratives that that is big is the narrative of personal success, often relating to Korea or the American dream, or you might as well call it the Western dream. And though this can be about a pursuit of money, I think it's often more about personal significance and being able to make for yourself a a name. And God in this can play his supporting part of of being part of our personal success story. And when we want to show the world that we're on top of everything, we can say we're on top of our spiritual life and, and invoke God there. This impulse can relate to how we present our image on things like social media. But honestly, in this part of the world, this personal success story, I think has more to do with education. Get the grades, go to the top college, achieve, get to the ranked grad school, get the job that validates it all, probably a professor or something. You know, we, conv- we convince ourselves that education will save us, will make us significant, give us what we need. And what sacrifices do we make to this God of education when it is in first place before anything else? Well, if we look at recent news, it means large sums of money into the pockets of athletics coaches to get our kids into top schools. We'll we'll trade our soul for a position at a top school. 
we, we teach our high schoolers in their formative years to optimize every moment, to, to make the most out of it, to pursue that spot at the top school. And the fruit of it is historically unprecedented levels of anxiety and loneliness and, and even suicide. Why would we prefer this God to the living God who says we have value before we achieve a thing? Another narrative is the inevitable progress of humanity through science and technology. We replace the victory of God and his justice with the victory of better techniques and better efficiency and better tech. What we really need is better technology to build the future we really want, built by human greatness and human hands, because surely we can trust the human heart to get things right. You know, email is going to give us so much more time and make us so much more efficient and surely won't suck us into being, having to be available 24-7 and always stressed by an ever-exploding inbox. Social media is going to connect us across large distance and help us community and, and build together and surely won't replace humanity with imagery and become platforms for exploitation by large corporations and malicious actors whose goals are profit and division. Big data and machine learning will solve problems of unprecedented efficiency and surely won't be used to manipulate human behavior towards profit and division again, again with unprecedented efficiency. Not to mention the existential threats of climate change and of, of weapons that can destroy everything that our innovation have produced. When we focus our goal on innovative techniques as the top thing, the thing that will save us, rather than on God's justice. We may make great technologies, but there's nothing to stop them becoming tools which dehumanize and destroy and divide. Why would we prefer this God to the living God, whose goal for us is full humanity, full justice, full restoration? Another false narrative is the statement that we can be free and flourish by not being bound to anyone and anything. Think about how many movies out there about the lone ranger who can just go and chart their own trajectory. True freedom is total autonomy, casting off restraint. We take the good news of freedom from oppression and sin and turn it, actually I think, into freedom from the obligation to love. We wouldn't say, like it, say it like that, but I think that's where it goes. People are increasingly resistant to really stand with each other in full commitment. Commitment to a community, commitment to marriage, commitment to a location or a society. Preferring instead to be free to move around without any commitment or duty. Avoiding the hard work of love. We talk big about love in our society, but we avoid it all the time. Because to love someone is to give them rights. Rights over your time rights over your resources, rights over your life. But there's a story out there that freedom is about no one having any rights to your time, your resources, or your life. Total autonomy. And people, on average, are lonelier than ever before, more isolated before. And God says it's not good for a man to be alone, but we've convinced ourselves that it's better to be alone and call it freedom or giving lip service to the idea that community and love would be good ideas? Why would we prefer this God of, of false freedom to a living God who calls us into community bound by love and self-sacrifice? 
And the final narrative I want to mention might actually be the biggest one. I think that in America, but also in other parts of the world, a lot of the times people's first commitment is to their political narrative. And when they're considering the claims of Christianity, they're essentially checking whether Christianity is sufficiently compatible with their previous political commitments. These are narratives that we're fed by the media and by politicians that just get reinforced by algorithms on Facebook. And these become the gods that get to stand over the living God in judgment. I remember reflecting on this when I was in a cabin getaway with Divinity School friends a number of years ago now. And we talked about a lot of things at that weekend. But at some point, it came up that I was in a position that I had to defend my conviction that it was very important to me as someone whose faith in Jesus was absolutely central and the source of all things, that I thought it would be a very unwise thing for me to choose to marry someone who did not share that thing that was the absolute source of my life. And in response to that, one of my friends who was becoming a minister in a Christian denomination, but whose faith definitely had significant differences from mine, he said, oh, I could marry someone who wasn't Christian really easy, no problem. I couldn't marry a Republican, though. <laughs> and it was interesting because he, he was like agreeing with me that it didn't make sense to him to marry someone who didn't share what was his ultimate source, the absolute base of where his ethics and morality and what he thought was right was came from. He just disagreed about what that thing was, right? And these polarized political narratives that our society is full of are poor substitutes for the good news of the living God. They're narrow. They're getting narrower and we are getting narrower because of them. They're tribal systems which we use to judge the other half of America. We actually concede our judgment to these narratives. Polls show that if you present an issue, immigration, climate change, you know, healthcare, outside of political narratives, then actually a large majority of Americans actually agree on, on, on the issue. But when it's presented as like, this is the conservative option and this is the progressive option, then suddenly it's 50-50 with conservatives lining up here and progressives lining up here. We're pledging allegiance to a story which the media has made and our news feeds reinforce. We look at a person and their ideas and we try to figure out which side of the narrative it's on so we know what to do with them. Should we judge them? Should we accept them? Should we be basically trusting towards this person or basically skeptical? Let the narrative to decide decide. And Christianity often has become only relevant in as much as it supports someone's political perspective. Media only mentions Christians with reference to who they're voting for. The gospel of life is reduced to a political football used to divide. People are asking the living God to justify himself with regard to a one-sided political narrative from one country and one part of history. We talk about conservative Christianity and progressive Christianity and the validity of Christianity and its message is assessed based on how well it fits into one camp or the other. We make such big sacrifices to honor these vain gods. We divide one another. We condemn one another. We decide, who, we decide in advance who's worth listening to. We decide in advance who's worth giving full humanity to who can be quickly disregarded. We put our ultimate hope in flawed politicians who will never be able to save us no more than Zeus and Hermes. 
Why would we prefer these gods to the living God who can save us and gives us a kingdom where justice reigns and all will be one? Now, it's important to note in all of these narratives that they contain truth and good things and things that can give life when they're put in their right position. When they're put under God and God is the source, then yes, of course, we should pursue good education. Of course, science and technology can do wonderful and important things. Of course, freedom is something that we need and is a good thing to seek. And of course, a robust and good and healthy political discourse is something that should be part of our society. But when they topple God and God is judged based on them, then all of a sudden we open ourselves to all those things that divide us and dehumanize us, rather than looking to the living God who gives life. And this is a particularly important message when we look out into the world and want to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Because people are assessing Christianity according to the narratives that they have already. And we need to be aware and wise to these things so that when we speak, we can address people's narratives and point to a better way. The people of Lystra were given the good news with word and action. And what did they do? They preferred the stories of their own dead gods and were ready to make great sacrifices to petty gods who could not help them. And too often... We have stories which we put in the place of the living God, and they can never save us, but we're ready to make sacrifices for them. Of our well-being, sacrifices of our sheer humanity, the humanity we're willing to extend to others, sacrifices of our ability to love. And into that, the words of Paul are the same. We bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth, and the sea that's all in them. We need to be rooted in the story of God and become actors and participants in his story rather than reducing God to play a bit part in the narratives we've chosen. Being rooted in God's story means being rooted in Scripture, becoming increasingly familiar with the entire story of Scripture and all of its parts, even the books you wouldn't name your kids after, like Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Malachi. We want to work together with one another and with faithful people throughout history to understand what God is doing in his whole story and how it all points to the reconciliation of all things and making all things new in Jesus. When we're so surrounded by so many stories, these truly vain things which seek to unseat God's position, we need to become skilled at rightly identifying these vain things and rightly identifying the better narrative of the living God, and then be willing, when it goes against all trends and popularity, to turn from these vain things to a living God who can give life. Let's pray.